Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, hi, friends. Father Frank Pathone here, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome to our broadcast. I'm coming to you live uh, here on this, uh, what day is today? The uh, 17th of October of uh, 2022. Now, those of you that follow our social media, and I'm at FR Frank Pavone. I hope you're all connected with me on all the major platforms. I hope you have your Truth Social account and 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 Getter account, of course, and we're broadcasting on Getter as well. We're grateful for that. Uh, but you will have seen that today is the second birthday of one of our Priest for Life mascots, a little doggy by the name of Alfredo. So check out the post. Uh, he's uh, These are Janet's dogs, as you know. She likes to remind us. And I know that many of you watch Janet's program during this during this uh, time, usually each evening. But uh, yeah, today's Alfredo's second birthday, and he has an older brother, Lorenzo. Uh, and uh, and they uh, both of them have an, an even older brother, Gianni. He's going to be 11 come November the 6th. So I know many of you are dog lovers and dog owners, and uh, uh, we rejoice in that as a gift of the Lord, don't we? Well, I want to say our opening prayer tonight. I just want to share with you some thoughts, and I can see your questions and comments coming in as well, so feel free to uh, let me know what's on your mind. But today, we uh, receive finally, uh, here in uh, Priest for Life, our shipment of these new prayer booklets that I wrote called In the Company of His Saints. Now, this is the sixth of a series of pro-life prayer books. Started off with In the Palm of His Hand, Prayers to End Abortion. That was some years ago. We came out with that prayer booklet. All of them are the same size. All of them are the same length. You know, a little bit over 60 pages. So In the Palm of His Hand, And then I wrote prayers for healing after abortion. That's in the heart of his mercy. Then the third book, I wrote biblically-based prayers, biblically-inspired prayers to end abortion. That booklet is called In the Light of His Word. Then I wrote a fourth one, Prayers to the Holy Spirit to End Abortion. That's in the power of His Spirit. And then the last two, one was In the Embrace of His Mother, Marian prayers to end abortion, and this sixth one, in the company of his saints, asking the intercession of the saints to protect the unborn. Now, I have a seventh one in mind, in the freedom of his kingship, political and and, uh, uh, patriotic prayers to end abortion. So that one hasn't been... uh, completely written yet, but that'll be the seventh one in this series of prayers. So, taking from this book, I want to go to a prayer here to a saint you may or may not have heard of. He's blessed, Clemens von Galen. He was a bishop of the church. He became a cardinal towards the end of his life, and he became famous uh, for a series of um, sermons he preached against the Nazi regime. Oh, but religion and politics don't mix, right? Here he was preaching against a political party, and that's what made him famous. And here he is being canonized. You know, first we first we have to persecute the clergy that speak out about about politics. First, you got to persecute them. 
and then later you canonize them. This is weird how the church is sometimes, right? Blessed Clemens von Gay, let me read this prayer that I they wrote in his honor. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God and Father of life, you anointed your Son, Jesus Christ, to proclaim liberty to the captives and announce a year of favor from the Lord. In every age, you raise up preachers to continue proclaiming the gospel of life and challenging the powers of darkness and death. We thank you today for blessed Clemens von Galen, who as a bishop preached clearly and courageously against the Nazi political party and their godless agenda of exterminating human beings. He challenged their false gospel that some lives are not worth living. He infuriated their leaders who did not know how to con contradict his authority. You gave Bishop Clemens a deep sense of responsibility to speak up for vulnerable human lives. You gave him clear vision to see and address the evil going on in his society. Give to all your people the same vision and courage. Give to your priests the ability to preach and teach about the evil of abortion. Enable them to challenge the politicians of our day who pursue an agenda of death. Through the fidelity of your priests and people, bring us to a culture of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed Clemens von Galen, pray for us. So that's the man. That's the bishop. That's the saint. And uh, boy, we need more like that. Bunch of pro-life saints in here or saints on the way, in the process underway to make them uh, canonized, but all of them an example and a lesson for building the culture of life. Um, now, we also have uh, here, I have in my hand, the latest travelogue of Priests for Life. And, you know, I, I don't talk about this much on our programs, but I do want to let you know because we're connected online. Of course, obviously, we, we connect very easily on the Internet. But, you know, sometimes it's good to have just some paper in your hand. And we do print and mail these out to those who want to receive them. The Travelogue is an eight-page uh, newsletter that talks about our travels, the travels of our Priests for Life team. I just came back uh, uh, yesterday, for example, from Indiana. I was speaking in Northwest Indiana at a conference on Saturday for the Lake County Right to Life. As some of you who are watching were, were there. Uh, at that conference, I spoke about the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, and I spoke about the uh, also the question they wanted me to address is how often should pastors preach about abortion? Well, a lot, a lot more than they're doing right now, that's for sure. Uh, but I addressed that question at great length. And then at night, I did a I I, held, I preached at a prayer service for couples who had lost children by miscarriage. And maybe some of you in the audience are among that group of, of people. That's a particular suffering. But, you know, a key part of building the culture of life and a key step towards protecting the unborn from being killed unnaturally by abortion is to protect and recognize the humanity and personhood of those babies that die from natural causes. If we're not treating them as persons, 
how are we going to ultimately overcome abortion? So we had a beautiful prayer service for people who lost the children to uh, miscarriage, um, not just as a as a as a, a, a pro life strategy, but obviously first and foremost to minister to the grief and pain uh, that these people are experiencing. Um, this travelogue talks about all these various kinds of things we do around the country. Not just me, but the rest of our team. Uh, this one here has uh, some examples of uh, uh, media interviews, masses that I've said at various conferences. Um, but, uh, but also, for example, there's an article here, successfully activated and encouraging elections volunteers ahead of the critical midterm elections. And well, all kinds of other uh, events, activities, things you can participate in. So contact us. Uh, just go to endabortion.us. That's our main website, as as I think most of you know, endabortion.us, and you'll see where you can sign up to receive our uh, mailings or just send us a note, drop us an email, give us a phone call, and tell us you want to receive this. Now, this we send out in the odd-numbered months. Okay, so we're in October. This is the October travelogue. In the, uh, in the even-numbered months, we send out a shorter newsletter. It's just half the, the length of this. And that newsletter, that's the one we had from the very beginning of Priest for Life, comes out every even, every odd-numbered month. And that focuses more on, I mean, it's good for material for everyone to read, but focuses especially on the clergy. It is sent to every priest in America and, uh, and talks about themes that clergy can find helpful in their ministry, but you would find it helpful as well. Okay, so my goodness, Planned Parenthood came out with, uh, I've got a few random thoughts to share with you. Planned Parenthood came out with a tweet the other day that really so abundantly shows their arrogance against the truth. Here's what they said. Oh, this term, late-term abortion, this is, this is not a proper medical term. This is something made up by the other side. Wow. Late-term abortion. You see what they're trying to do? That you're smarter than this. This is not going to get by you. Somehow, the, what, they're, what they're trying to do here is aim for the very, very low-information citizen who's just going to not even think and just going to take hook, line, and sinker, the garbage that these people put out there, the lies, the deceptions. How is this a deception? Well, late-term abortions happen. Late-term abortions means that they say, oh, the phrase is not, it's not, it's not a, it's not a meaningful phrase. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It means abortions taking place in the final stages of pregnancy, the late stages of pregnancy. Abortions in the sixth month. Abortions at 30 weeks, at 32 weeks. Now, if people don't believe that these are actually happening, go to our website, preachforlife.org slash late-term abortion and listen to the telephone calls that we've recorded. Telephone calls into legal abortion facilities where you can schedule an abortion at 30 weeks. Oh, but that's only it only happens when there's health problems. Wrong again. Wrong again. 
watch, listen to the phone calls that we've put into these places and we've recorded to demonstrate the fact that you can say to these people, you can say, oh, Deborah has a good question. I'm going to get to that question. Let's, let's flag that question. You can call and you can say you're a healthy baby. You're carrying a healthy baby and you're a healthy mother and you want to abort that baby at 30 weeks or 32 weeks even. And I know abortionists that do it even later than that. And they'll schedule the appointment. You can listen to it happen. They schedule the appointment right there on the telephone call without even having to have the person hang up. So Planned Parenthood, stop the arrogance. Stop thinking that we're fools. It's happening. And you know what? It's happening even in your facilities. You arrogant, heartless killers. You're doing it. Stop denying it. Bloodthirsty murderers that you are. Stop denying it. Stop this garbage. Oh, late-term abortion is not a, a technical term. What in the world difference does it make how technical it is? What in the world difference is it? And the issue is not, is it a medical term? The issue is, is it happening? And are you trying to justify it? And are you getting paid $25,000 for one of these procedures? Brothers and sisters, you get later on in pregnancy, these are multi-day procedures to kill these babies. These are deliveries. These are inductions of labor. These are procedures when, where, you, where they have to send, they have to send the, the mom who comes for the abortion over to a nearby hotel. She's got a plan to travel to another city and stay there for four days. Because they're going to dilate the cervix and they're going to wait for that baby to come out. Now, this is, there's no words for this. And Planned Parenthood has the audacity, the arrogance to, to consider us to be so such fools that they want to make us think this isn't even happening. And some people are going to think that and that's why they do it. Because they know. They know we're not going to take this nonsense, but they don't care. They're not going to win us over anyway. They want to try to make us look foolish and bad. You remember, remember President Trump, he's talking about late-term abortion. The U.S. Congress, the Republicans are talking about late-term abortion. They introduced a bill to stop that. We in the pro-life movement are talking about late-term abortion. So, of course, Planned Parenthood is going to want to say, oh, they're going to want to give the impression, oh, but there's no such thing. <laughs> no such thing. Then what are the advertisements all about that advertise abortions in all three trimesters? What's, what's that, uh, Planned Parenthood? Uh, a figment of somebody's imagination? These people are so arrogant, it's unbelievable. So I, I wanted to, 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 to tell you that was their, one of their latest, one of the latest iterations of their stupidity. Deborah is asking, uh, what is the March for Life focusing on now that Roe v. Wade is overturned? Very good question. The March for Life will happen in January, January 20th, 2023. We'll be there. I'll be leading the prayer service in the morning. And it'll be focusing on what do we do now that Roe is gone, because there's a lot more work to be done, as you know. 
abortion has to be still ended. It still is happening. Now, it's ended in a lot of states. About 13 states now are abortion-free, and as much as they've enacted laws successfully to protect babies from the first uh, uh, moment of their lives. And you know, what's so amazing about this is for decades, we've been looking and waiting, praying and hoping and wondering what was going to be the first abortion-free state. Now we've got like 13 of them. Another five states are protecting the baby from the point where the heartbeat is detectable. And then about 30 states have reasonable, I shouldn't say reasonable, about 30 states have meaningful, I meant to say, gestational limits. In other words, they, they there's a definite line into the pregnancy after which those babies are protected. And the lines will differ from state to state. What the March for Life is going to focus, in, uh, focus, focus on, as all of us in the, these national groups are focusing on, is more state-by-state activity because the challenges are different in each state. The opportunities are different in each state. Now, they always have been. But the problem is with Roe v. Wade in the way, what the states were doing to protect the unborn kept getting struck down by the courts. Oh, we'll take Michael's question, too. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm seeing these questions while I'm answering them. Uh, Jenny, too, has a great question. Uh, keep the questions coming, friends. This is great. Um, but, 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 uh, uh, but there's still the role for the Congress, and there still has to be. You think about it. We are a national movement. There still has to be a national rallying point each year for the pro-life movement to come together and recommit ourselves to the work that we're doing throughout the course of the year in the different states. But the work on the federal level still continues. Remember, the Dobbs decision, and and I want to say this because we hear some politicians now, some candidates for Congress, maybe even some members of Congress, have the wrong idea. Some of our fellow citizens have the wrong idea when they say, oh, well, you know, the abortion issue, well, now that's just a matter for the states. The matter has not gone away from the responsibility of the federal government. The Congress can still legislate on abortion. As a matter of fact, it can legislate on it now more than it could before because now the court is saying, we're not going to stand in your way. The shift in the Dobbs decision, understand, brothers and sisters, is not a vertical shift. It's a horizontal shift. It's not shifting it from the federal to the states as if, oh, well, this is just a state issue now. No, it's not. It is a state issue and a federal issue because the shift that happened in Dobbs was from one branch of government to the other, from the judicial to the legislative. It moved from the courts to the legislatures to the lawmakers, or as the Dobbs decision puts it, to the people and their elected representatives. Well, when you say that abortion policy now can be set by the people and their elected representatives, that refers to every level of government. It refers to the Congress. And they just introduced a bill to stop abortions at 15 weeks. Now, I'm going to go back in a moment to the importance of that. But it refers to the state legislatures indeed. And the states have been stepping up to the plate. In fact, they've been stepping up to the plate for the last 50 years. The courts have been blocking them. But they've been doing their work nevertheless. And now a lot of those good laws are being reenacted. 
re reinvigorated. They're putting coming into effect. And it also refers to local government, the people and their elected representatives. Who are the people on your city council? They're elected too. And they represent you too. The people and their elected representatives are to do the work of setting policy on abortion and not be blocked by the courts. So we have sanctuary cities for the unborn. Our friend Mark Lee Dixon, he's been on our program. He'll be on again. And he is saying that we have a movement now where city councils are saying there will not be abortions allowed in our city. Well, the people in their elected representatives can set abortion policy. That's what Dobbs said. So it, it, it be, be careful of those who are saying, oh, but that's just the state issue. You know, that might be, uh, you know, politicians that just think abortion's too much of a hot potato. They don't want to deal with it. Just like some of them used to be able with Roe in place to hide behind the courts. Now they want to, they just, they just transfer it up to the courts, their, their responsibility to deal with abortion. Now the temptation might be to just throw it down to the states. Oh, it's not my responsibility. Well, yeah, it is. And so Congress has introduced the 15 week bill. And, uh, you know, the importance of that, obviously the Democrats are not even going to give it a vote. That's why we've got to take back the house, take back the Senate then in 2024, take back the White House, then we can pass meaningful pro-life legislation that will be enacted and not blocked by the courts. And so we're putting this 15-week bill in the pipeline. It's, we've got to think long-term. Patience takes years. We put it in the pipeline to eventually become law under a pro-life president in 2025. We got to start now, though. You got to start the engines running. And um, but the point that, that makes this so important in California on November eighth, you got Proposition One. In Michigan, you got Proposal Three. In Vermont, you got Proposal Five. These three proposed these three ballot initiatives must be voted down. You know, people in California, in Michigan, in Vermont, warn them about these things, because all three of these are trying to put into the state constitutions the so-called right to abortion that the Supreme Court just said is not in the federal constitution. Well, listen, for the very reasons that the court said it's not in the federal constitution, it's not in the state constitutions either. You can't invoke privacy or autonomy to take somebody else's life. There's plenty of rights of privacy or autonomy that we all recognize, but none of them are invoked in order to end somebody's life. Not only that, but if a right to abortion was never asserted in American history up until Roe v. Wade, and the Dobbs case proves that, well, then that means it was never in California history either. Nor was it in Michigan history, nor was it in Vermont's history. You don't have a right to abortion. And what these ballot initiatives, again, Proposition 1 in California, Proposal 3 in Michigan, and Proposal 5 in Vermont, are trying to do is to bypass the legislative process where you, the people, and your elected representatives decide abortion policy. The other side is afraid of that because when the people really wrestle with this issue, and when there are hearings, and when there are expert testimonies, and when there are debates, and when there's lobbying, and when we can persuade our fellow voters as well as our elected officials, 
then people start to see who's right on this and who's wrong. And they start to see the reality of abortion. Uh, let's take Helene's question too. That's going to be very, uh, that's going to be very, uh, important. You see what I'm saying? So w- w- the, the conclusion of this is if the Congress, the, first of all, if some of these ballot amendments pass and you know, these ballots amendments do pass like the one in Kansas, uh, the one in Kansas, that was the other way around. We were trying to get people to to say that there that, that the Constitution does not uh, promote a to contain a right to abortion. When 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 people are when these ballot initiatives pass, as sometimes they do, the the uh, bottom line is that that the other side is very very easy very easily deceives people very easily deceives people into what these things say and what they don't say, what they mean and what they don't mean. And uh, you're dealing with an artificial deadline and you're dealing with something that can be decided based on a slogan. They bypass the legislative process. And now some of these proposals are put on the ballot through a legislative process, yes, but it's not exactly the same thing. Uh, We have to be... Uh, electing the people who are going to lead us through the process of debating these questions in a public way that's going to lead people to understand what all this means. And uh, it's so easy for for, for the, the lies to slip by. Let's see what um, uh, these questions are that we uh, that we flagged. What is my take on the elections for governor in New York State, Michigan, and Florida? Well, here in Florida, we're very, very confident, of course, about the re-election of Ron DeSantis. Uh, he is uh, America's governor in many ways, so, so well-respected increasingly around the nation as an example of what is to be done uh, in a state. So we're, we're confident. Now, in New York and Michigan, of course, those are tougher races, but Tudor Dixon in Michigan, boy, did she do great in the recent debate. Uh, Wow. It was like, wow. She is really so good, so powerful. And of course, you know, it's kind of easy to to show how terrible uh, Gretchen Whitmer is there because uh, she's utter disaster. But Tudor did very well in the debate. Um, And she's got President Trump's endorsement, of course, and... uh, She's she's doing great. The thing I would say about New even in New York, I think we are on the verge here of such a strong wave, and it's a red wave. But I've been as I've been saying on other broadcasts, it's an American wave, which means whether you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, you realize the country's not working, and we want a country that works, and we want people who are going to be able to make it work. And so we're going to see a lot of people electing the Republicans, not because they're Republican, but because they're fed up with the dysfunction in America. Above all, starting with the considerations about the economy, right? What I mean to say, therefore, and Dick Morris, great political analyst, I hope you have his book called The Return, That's about President Trump in 2024. 
But Dick Morris has recently said, this week he said, in fact, it might have been just even today, he said, look, you know, I'm, I've come to the conclusion now that this wave is going to be so strong that if you're a Republican in a race, no matter where you are, no matter what state you're in, no matter what level of government, no matter what the odds are against you, don't count yourself out for, for winning. You have a chance to win. Because, you know, in big wave elections, all bets are off. Even, even races that were nobody saw it coming, you know, can really, uh, can really surprise us. And uh, let's see Joe's question as well. Let's go back to the, to the flagged questions. I see my, the board here. Uh, what is happening? Jenny asked. Jenny, thanks for this. This is an important question. They're all important. What happens with these children's bodies? Hmm. You know why the question is so important? Because in order to resolve the abortion issue, we've got to remember that there is a body in the first place. Abortion is not a magic wand or an eraser. And we all know this is like, Father Frank, what are you talking about? But in the minds of many people, it is. It's just like a magic. They don't want to think about what happens next. They don't want to think about the body. They don't want to think about the baby. They don't want to think about the humanity of the baby. They don't want to think about the consequences of abortion. It's just an easy way out. And when we say way out, we mean that quite literally that once you're out, you're out and you don't even think about it anymore, except that the person who undergoes the abortion realizes that it's not a matter of not thinking about it anymore. It's a matter of not being able to forget what happens to the bodies. They get often incinerated. They get thrown in dumpsters outside of the abortion clinics where a lot of the pro-life people go and rescue them. That's how some of them have been brought to me in order to bury. In fact, did you see my, I'm on TikTok as well as all these other platforms. Did you see the video? I think we got put it out on our other platforms through the video I did the other day, challenging the Democrat candidates. I said to them, the next time a pathologist or a, or a pro-life activist brings me the body of an aborted baby, and this happens periodically. I challenge the Democrat candidates. In fact, let me repeat that challenge right here and right now. I challenge you to, to stand with me over the casket of that murdered baby. Stand with me and look at that baby. You deceived and deceiving politicians with blood on your hands have the courage to come and look at that baby. You lying, deceitful, murderous people who don't belong anywhere near public office. You don't deserve a single vote. You're a disgrace to America, to your family, to your faith. You are a disgrace. You Democrat candidates, you're a disgrace. Raphael Warnock in Georgia, what a disgrace. Fetterman in Pennsylvania, what planet did this man come from? And on and on we can go. I want to challenge these people. And I do challenge these people. Stand with me at the casket of these aborted babies. Look at their bodies. Look at their mangled bodies. Mangled by an act that you promote and want us to pay for. You shameful excuses for leaders. You're not leaders. And show the voters what it is. Show the voters, you disgraceful excuses 
for a leader. Show the voters. You don't deserve, you know, these Democrats, listen, they don't deserve a single vote from anybody. They have got to be so definitively routed from public office that the Democrat Party on the day after Election Day scratches its head and tears its hair out and says, boy, we've got to make some major changes. That's right. You've got to make some major changes. Starting on this issue. All right. So let's look at some of these other questions. Uh, go ahead. Put Diane's question up there. Let me see what the uh, what the rest of the, Okay. So Helene, I told you I wanted to get your to your question. So they are saying, they on the other side are saying, the mother cannot get an abortion even if her life is at risk. Listen, there's no, none of the pro-life laws that have been uh, passed, and I've referenced all these state laws now that have been passed. None of them prohibit emergency medical treatment if a mother's life is at stake. Now, you notice the way that I'm saying this, because first of all, the killing of the baby, the direct killing of the baby is never medically necessary to save the mother. The direct deliberate killing of the baby. Now, sometimes in a medically complicated pregnancy, you have to deliver the baby early. Of course. But as Dr. John Bruchowski just came out with a book called uh, Two Patients, and and, uh, I did a little quick video about that book, and Janet did an interview with him. You may have seen it already. Uh, There are two patients there. You do your best for both patients. So medically speaking, and I don't, of course, I'm not saying this as a doctor, I'm, I'm saying this as someone who knows these doctors and doctors themselves are saying it, that there's no medical necessity to kill a baby. So mothers are not under any of these pro-life laws that have been either passed or proposed are not going to be denied medical uh, treatment. Let's go back to the, uh, uh, and then, so what the other side is trying to do, as Helene is pointing out, is to convince people that, oh, my goodness, you know, be careful of these Republicans, because if you elect them, they're going to ban all abortion and women aren't even going to be able to have the basic medical treatment that they need. That's nonsense. It's a lie. Um, uh, if you have an ectopic pregnancy, for example, no one is going to let that mother stay that way. You got it. You're exactly right. Nobody's going to let, nobody's going to fail to treat an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, the rupturing of the tube is life-threatening to the mother. And removing a damaged tube, which is what, exactly what you would do if there were a tumor growing there, is the appropriate medical um, uh, intervention in that case. Again, there is no need ever for a direct abortion uh, to save a mother's life. Okay, now Diane Maria is asking an interesting question. Can you give Father Frank? Can you give some advice? Let's go back to Diana's question. Uh, and uh, Catholic help groups to women who are going through post-abortion regret. Well, yes, I am privileged to be the pastoral director of one of them, and that is uh, Rachel's Vineyard. Uh, you may be familiar, rachelsvineyard.org. And that is the largest ministry in the world for healing after abortion. And we have Catholic retreats. You see the website now going across the bottom of the screen. Uh, Based on the word of God, based on the sacraments of the church, and based on the very sound uh, psychological research that our pastoral associate, Dr. Teresa Burke, has done over the years. Now, there are other programs, too. Catholic-based as well as beyond. But if you're looking for Catholic-based programs, another place you can go 
is simply, uh, this is a search engine that we've set up, abortionforgiveness.com. And you'll see a whole bunch of things come up in the results page where the Rachel's Vineyard retreats are. But then you'll see some other ministries too. And you can just call and inquire. Um, but the Catholic community is um, blessed to have uh, so many different ministries. And, you know, Catholic ministries is... Um, Catholic ministries are are not just, it's not identically the same as parish or diocesan ministries. And, and I'm making that distinction because, you know, uh, the uh, a diocese might have an outreach, not, not just in the area of abortion healing, but um, in uh, reference to any issue. The church is bigger than the diocese. The church is bigger than a parish. The church is bigger than the bureaucratic structure. The church is the people of God filled with the Spirit of God who pours forth so many different gifts and graces and creativity that many independent ministries rise up and offer the, 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 the kind of help that you're looking for. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, do we have some other questions? Uh, that we've tagged. Okay. All right. Continue, friends, with uh, uh, questions that might be on your minds, or 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 uh, maybe some that we had before that I need to come up again. Oh, another thing I wanted to mention. Well, okay. So a lot of times Janet is on during this particular time of the evening. I just wanted to let you know tomorrow is her birthday. So we're going to um, give you an opportunity tomorrow on uh, social media, of course, to give her your best wishes and prayers. And I know she'll appreciate that. Uh, but, but she is um, going to celebrate her birthday tomorrow. And, uh, you know, she really uh, is a big reason for the success that, we have had in this ministry that I have had personally as a pro-life leader. Uh, it, it would be difficult to find someone in pro-life leadership who is more kind and generous, thoughtful, and uh, committed. Let me tell you a story about, about Jessie. She's not here tonight, so we can talk freely in this particular way. Years ago, uh, she had a um, uh, problem with her ankle. Uh, she, it was a bad sprain. She had to walk on crutches for, I guess, a couple of weeks. And it happened to be right at the time before the annual March for Life. So you would think, okay, you got to get on a plane, go to Washington, stand up for hours on end, march a couple of miles. Not only that, but the next day, we were scared the next day we were scheduled to fly to California to go to the walk for life. Now the walk for life at that time had a route in San Francisco that went up some of those big San Francisco Hills. Those of you that are familiar with the city, you know, the Hills, the route now, now nowadays is, is a little bit different. It's all flat. Those days we had to go up the hill so here we were scheduled to do these two big events. You're on crutches. Anyone would understand, hey, oh, sorry, so-and-so can't go to the wall, can't go to the march. Janet went to both. She went to both. 
She went to Washington, marched for life on the crutches, got on a plane, went to California, and the next day did the walk for life up the hill and through miles of walking on the crutches. That's just one of a thousand examples I could give of uh, her commitment to this cause, her commitment to you, to you, encouraging you, traveling around the country, meeting up with you, producing resources, doing programs, writing books. Um, we're blessed. And, and Janet exhibits a spirit of commitment and also of leadership that is at the soul of this movement. There are so many, so many of you exhibit exactly the same spirit. I know a lot of you. Others I know that you watch, but I don't know you as well. But I know that I would find, if I got to know you better, the very same spirit. So pray and rejoice and give thanks to the Lord with Janet for her birthday tomorrow. And she'll have a chance, of course, to chat with you as she always likes to do. Uh, Joe is asking about Janet coming to Florida. Actually, Joe is asking, Janet followed you to Florida? No, actually, she, in a sense, she led us to Florida. She already had family down here, and she was um, uh, at one point, as we were having a, a planning meeting some years ago, she indicated that she was intending to move down uh, to Florida as well to be with family and uh, that started us thinking along the track that, well, maybe we ought to go down there as a, as a, as a, for our headquarters because we wanted to keep the administrative team together. But not only that, we were, we were running, our, our lease was coming to an end for our building in New York. We did not own it. We, we paid monthly rent in New York city. So you can imagine. And um, we also had outgrown the building. I mean, we were literally squeezing every inch of space, literally every inch. And so we said, we, we got we to get a bigger building. And things in New York, you know, politically aren't so friendly either. And uh, whenever people asked us, where's your favorite spot to travel? We said, well, Florida is pretty good. All these factors came together. But Janet was coming down here anyway. And... Um, and so it all worked out for the best. Of course, we got out of New York just before the pandemic, and we got to Florida just before the election of America's greatest governor, Ron DeSantis. So it all worked out quite providentially and quite well. So let's see. Do we have any other uh, questions? Uh, somebody was asking about, um, uh, let's see, the... Oh, yeah, someone is saying, yeah, Janet is intelligent and knows answers to all these different questions. Somebody was asking about Rachel's Vineyard in New York. You can see where the New York, that's Laura, you can see where the New York locations are by going to, first of all, if you're in New York, if you go to that site I mentioned, abortionforgiveness.com, and you put your zip code, it'll show you the Rachel's Vineyards by around your zip code if you're in a New York zip code. Otherwise, if you go to rachelsvineyard.org, the Rachel's Vineyard website itself, you'll see a link for the sites. And if you go on the page that shows the sites, obviously then you can search it by state and you'll see the different retreat sites in New York. 
All right, fantastic. Wow, well, this is great. Um, uh, let's see. Michael is asking uh, back on the topic of the ectopic pregnancies, uh, the concept of a second negative, uh, secondary negative consequence. Yes. So there's a principle in ethics uh, called double effect. So you have a positive and a negative consequence. Um, is an action okay if you have a positive and a negative consequence? And the answer is, well, yes, as, so long as you're not bringing about the positive as a result of choosing the negative. We all know you can't do evil in order to achieve good. An evil act is evil. It might have some good consequences but you can't use the good consequences to justify the evil act. So as long as if an act is going to have two consequences or several, some good, some bad, you can't do the bad to achieve the good. Plus they need to be proportionate. So removing a damaged ectopic, uh, removing a damaged fallopian tube because the pregnancy is an ectopic, by the way, comes from two Greek words, meaning simply out of place. All right, it's not in the right place. Removing the damaged tube has the effect of saving one life and ending another. It's not a direct killing of that child, but it's a, it's a secondary effect. They're equivalent. So yes, they're proportional. So the proportionality as well as the intentionality, you don't do evil to achieve good. That's called the principle of double effect. It's an ethical principle. It's been developed over the centuries, and it applies in this particular case. So thanks for bringing that up. That's going a little bit deeper into the, um, into the question. Uh, Dawn is asking an important question now. Do any states penalize the woman for having an abortion? And no, Dawn, actually they don't. And they never have either. When, you know, we see in the Dobbs case, for instance, a review of the history of abortion in America. And we each actually see in the appendix of the Dobbs case, of the Dobbs decision, the um, state laws that uh, were passed throughout the country prior to the time of Roe v. Wade, protecting the unborn, prohibiting abortion. And none of them ever punished the mother. Now, one might say, well, but wait a minute, if this is the, in fact, murder, if this is the taking of a human life, and we know that it is, why wouldn't you punish the person who took the life? Abortion is unique. Now, the other side looks at it as unique because this is the only situation in which they would invoke privacy or autonomy or liberty to end another life. It's the only circumstance. Well, of course, we know that <laughs> we're, we're talking about we're talking about um, invoking it in the in the in a legal context and actually actually authorizing a private decision to kill an innocent person. Okay. When we think about the punishment that should follow for taking an innocent life. The consideration in abortion, the difference is not that the life is, is any less valuable or any less human. It is equally human and equally valuable and equally deserving of protection. What's different is on no other taking of life, no other killing of life 
is so disguised as abortion is. And in no other circumstance is the person doing the killing so unaware so much of the time of what the killing is. People are so deceived by this, so deceived. Now, I'm not saying that they're not, you know, everybody's completely unaware. No, of course not. But this is a situation in which, I mean, we recognize it when when it comes to murder laws, right? There's first-degree murder. There's homicide. There's involuntary manslaughter. There's all these different categories. Now, nobody's saying that that killing somebody, you know, first-degree murder and, and you know, uh, uh, homicide or involuntary. Nobody's saying that those lives are not all human lives. What we're saying, what's different is not the value of the life. What's different is the circumstances going on in the mind of the killer, the mind and, and the will. That's what's different, right? So the same reason that you have this hierarchy of differences regarding the protecting the lives of born people, when it comes to the unborn, those same factors that mitigate guilt are hypercharged to the point that there is this massive denial that this is a human being and this massive deception that you're killing anybody at all. This is one of the reasons why. This is one of the reasons why. Um, We don't uh, punish the mother, not because it's not a life, but because when you think about it, who's doing the killing? Who's the more guilty? And who's the one that has to be stopped more immediately? Now, the mother has an abortion. That's pretty bad. Is she going to have a second one? Maybe, maybe not. The abortionist who killed her child, is he going to do another abortion? Is she going to do another abortion? Of course. That's what they're doing. We've got to stop the abortionist. Is that mother going to let anybody know who that abortionist was if she herself could end up in jail? No. It's going to be harder to, if these people are doing them secretly, if they're doing them against the law, we're not going to be able to track them down as easily as we could if somebody who has undergone that procedure lets us know who they are and where they are. Not to mention, it becomes very difficult for us in the church to minister to uh, and to invite people like this to come forward uh, when uh, there's the fear of being punished. Not that we would ever reveal anything we can't. We would not want to, but you see the you see the the added obstacle that that could be for their own healing and many other reasons besides. But thanks for that question because now that more states are um, uh, prohibiting abortion, this question comes up more and more. Well, friends, I think that uh, well, it, you know, it's delightful to be able to talk to you, spread the word about. Um, Uh, our programs. And I'm going to come on more frequently. I used to always do the nine o'clock slot. And I was talking with Janet about the fact that we need to share this time a little bit more. I'm on at eight o'clock, as you know, but that's a specific program, Praying for America, that Right Side Broadcasting invited me to do. And we, we, we show it on our channels as well. Uh, But that's Praying for America. That has a very specific focus 
patriotic biblical education, election-related stuff, uh, a lot of news items about the, the politics, and I know a lot of you are, are uh, deeply involved in that, as are we. Um, but our mission is, is involves so many other things and uh, is, is very, very abortion-focused. And for these conversations like we've been having tonight, uh, I do need to come on more. Uh, it's just with all my travels and with all the preparation that needs to uh, be done, uh, this is why we've had some changes uh, in the um, uh, in, in 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 the scheduling of our programming. But we'll, we're just going to be we're just going to just plow ahead and do it anyway, and uh, and squeeze it all in because it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Now, final thing uh, for our prayer. I'm going to uh, play a prayer that I, I recited um, and that we are inviting you to pray each day because this now is, we are in the novena uh, for the feast of John Paul II, St. John Paul II. Now, Sunday, yesterday, was his uh, anniversary of being elected as Pope. Um, October 22nd, was the day of his formal installation. And the church chose the day of his formal installation as Pope to be his feast day as a saint. So we have started back on the 14th, we started a novena of prayer in honor of John Paul that will culminate on the 22nd. And we made a nice little video uh, of that prayer, which I would like to uh, share with you now as we conclude and invite you to say each day, Take inspiration from John Paul II. He is the Pope of life, and he is a Pope who issued the Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, that beautiful document, which remains the Church's best and strongest exposition of her position on abortion. Really great document. Gospeloflife.org is where you can learn more and read that document, read our commentary on that encyclical, gospeloflife.org. So friends, thank you. Join me again during the course of the week. Tune into my 8 p.m. Uh, program and stay tuned to our 9 p.m. programs too. Sometimes it'll be me, sometimes it'll be Janet, uh, but we got a lot to share with you always. Sometimes it'll be me and Janet together. Uh, but in any case, we, we, we love to have you staying uh, connected uh, with us. So, uh, Father Frank Pavone here. We're praying for you each day. And now let's uh, conclude in prayer the novena with the novena to John Paul II. God bless. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.